This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Premise accepting pregens. Lovecraft Oxford's Stoker. Are audiences dumber? And the Hexam Heads. Good day, everyone. It's your math teacher, Mr. Height, and I'm joined by my prize student, Robin. Today, we're going on a mathematical adventure with Infinity Tiles. Hi, Mr. Height. Infinity Tiles? What's that? Well, imagine an infinite puzzle that's not just fun, but also teaches spatial reasoning. And guess what, Robin? These tiles are made right here in the USA from recycled plastic. That's pretty cool, Mr. Height. But I'm Canadian. Why should I care about these tiles? Ah, Robin, that's the exciting part. Just this past March, mathematicians discovered something incredible. The hat, which is an aperiodic monotile. That one shape can cover an infinite surface without repeating patterns. Whoa, that's the stuff of mathematical dreams. But how do these tiles work? Great question, Robin. Infinity tiles are plastic pieces that go together like a puzzle. They connect endlessly, but here's the twist. They can also misconnect in wrong ways that lead to gaps that can't be filled. That's amazing, Mr. Hyde. But if I'm not a math genius, can I still enjoy them? Absolutely, Robin. No math degree needed. Infinity tiles are all about discovery. Whether you're playing solo or with friends of any age, finding the right fit is fun and engaging. I'm sold, Mr. Hyde. When can we give them a try? That's the spirit, Robin. You can back their Kickstarter at atlas-games.com slash infinityks. Thanks for showing me infinity tiles, Mr. Height. I can't wait! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut where everyone's going to play with their miniatures, they're going to eat their Doritos, they're going to appreciate Peter Frampton coming alive, and most of all, they're going to get down to gaming because they are a table of premise acceptors, Robin. Yes, and they have the miniatures have been supplied by you, the GM. By me, the GM. Yeah, because they go with these characters. They do, and the characters go with the scenario, Robin. Exactly. And so, uh, as you suggest, Ken, we're going to talk about how to write up pregens so that the players are more likely to accept the premise. I say more likely to rather than will, because premise rejection is an ongoing issue in the, in the world of uh, role-playing. But you can at least get people there faster by writing up characters that are designed to go with the scenario. And you might think, Ken, that this is an obvious thing to say, and perhaps it is, but like many obvious things we say, not everybody does it. Wild. And it's particularly easy, I think, to just sort of grab a bunch of pregens from like whatever resource page is available on, you know, the publisher of the game or, you know, find some other pre-existing pregens and then just go, and I'm going to plunk them into this mission. And that's fine. You know, if you find pregens that you can work with and just sort of adjust a bit, that's great. But you're going to want to translate them a bit in order to ensure that whatever's happening in the mission, the players can see on their character sheet, in their bio, exactly what it is that they're going to be expected to do. And so the first step, 
is to look at your scenario and think, okay, so what are the things that the characters are supposed to do in this scenario that fictional characters would do because they're motivated to do so? Characters need motivation to do what? And Ken, how would you set about doing that? Well, I mean, with a sort of a, a standard dungeon scenario, F20 dungeon, motivation is almost baked into characters because it's how you get, you know, more powerful. So you could simply write in a line for every character that says, you know, Asaph the Bard covets uh, a silver streamed loot that will let him do better bard magic. And he's either he's heard of one in this dungeon or he knows that the dungeon's going to have enough money that he can go to the loot smith and get himself a fancy silver string loot and just go down that with every single one of those characters and, you know, give some attribute to their greed, lust for power, desire for personal improvement, however you cast it. And that's easy peasy, right? The whole point of the characters in F20 is to go into dangerous places and loot them for loots or right. whatever a other. Pre- a pregen for an F20 game, basically, the, the motivation is baked into it being a character for an F20 game. Mm-hmm. So when we move to other scenarios uh, that require pregens, and so we're talking one shots and convention runs, where you're likelier to run into people having trouble engaging with the premise. What do you look at in the scenario to determine what it is that you think people won't want to do in order to uh, get over them? So one way is to just look at a, you know, an omnipresent motivation and just make sure that you write all of the characters so that the usual shtick that people who like to slow things down and obstruct the story and play the guy who's too scared to do anything or the client quibbler look for ways to write those possibilities out so that everybody is described as being highly motivated and highly motivated to do the particular thing that this scenario is meant to do, right? Because Mm. unlike characters that are designed for long-term play or that the players themselves would create, you need them only for this scenario. So it can be something, you know, very specific for, you know, the, the scholar character is determined to find his father's lost book, which he knows is at the old mill. Mm -hmm. The debutante is determined to clear her uh, name, which requires her to go to the old mill to find the thing. And so that you have everybody not only have a reason to accept the premise, but you're foreshadowing something cool that they are going to expect to have happen in the adventure. Mm -hmm. So the trick is when you do that, it has to pay off. Yeah. You have to put the father's, you know, manuscript in the old mill next to the uh, blackmail evidence that was being used on the debutante and assuming that you're fighting some sort of giant, you know, paper collecting raven or something, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So the uh, the old Call of Cthulhu way was your uncle has died and left you a haunted house or maybe your uncle has vanished into the haunted house and you have to go find him. And everyone just sort of says, yep, guess I had an uncle I've never heard of. But in a pregen. You've never heard of anything on your character sheet. So that suddenly makes sense and works. So one of the things you can do rather than give everyone a reason to go into the haunted house, you give two or three of the characters the reason to go to the old mill and the other characters give them reasons to follow the first characters. So there's, you know, the PI normally wouldn't be caught dead in the countryside, but he's in love with the debutante and she's going to the old mill. So he's got to follow her. And the guy who's looking for his dad's book, is being, you know, followed by his lawyer, who's like, I stand to lose a lot of money if you don't come back with that book in 
the right format. So I'm going to go in after you and make sure that that's going to work out or whatever it is. Right. So you don't have to give everyone a, a dongle that's in the old mill. You just have to knit the party together in some fashion and then send the leaders or the pointers, I guess, of that party into the old mill and the rest ideally takes care of itself. Right. Right. You made me thinking listener that the more specifically hooked into the scenario ideas, you know, needing to find the book, being anxious to clear your name, you may think that, oh, well, that's giving too much away. Or perhaps even a better example of that would be the the bard looking for the silver cup. Isn't that telling us that there's going to be a silver cup? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because this is a one shot and you are giving people shortcuts to the fun. That's the entire uh, point of things. And you're tempting to focus people. And part of focus is giving them information to work with, to tell them what it is that they can expect to, to do, give them an objective, give them something that they can then feel good about achieving in the course of the scenario. So that rather than just the negative thing of avoiding premise rejection, you're actively creating a reward, a goal, something to um, move them forward so that they're not just, you know, on the airplane at the beginning, questioning why they're on the airplane. They all know why they're on the airplane. Yeah. The, um, other, I guess, you know, key to this is if you've got the silver uh, string loot for the bard, you've got the blackmail documents for the debutante, don't obviously then put them in the first room of the dungeon or haunted house, because then they'll say, aha, I accepted the premise. I've found what I'm here for. Now I'm leaving. Don't care about ghosts. And so you need to make sure that those items are either, you know, just physically deep in the adventure or better are tied so inextricably into the 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 challenge the threat the monster the the big you know happening the boss fight if you will that the moment of discovery and character you know catharsis of hurrah finally this thing that i've you know wanted my whole life is in my hands is simultaneous to or comes at a good beat with the actual beats of the adventure which are probably not necessarily finding your dad's book, but they were fighting the giant monster raven or whatever it was. Now, a very common thing that goes into pre-gens is the ringer character, right? That, Mm -hmm. you you know, during the course of this, you are going to reveal that you are secretly an assassin for the uh, king and you're trying to, you know, kill the prince and get get rid of his rival or what have you. Mm -hmm. Something that implies a betrayal or a reveal, and that can be a lot of fun. But the trick there is to make sure that the ringer is also highly motivated to move the story toward its conclusion rather than being a sideline distraction, a threat to the storyline. And so in this case, if the assassin is secretly looking for the prince, you have to make sure that everybody else is also looking for the prince. They're just not the one trying to kill him so that you're not looking for just well, as a thief, you make it a point of pride to always kill all the other members of your party about halfway through any adventure and then walk away whistling. That's a disruptive event mm-hmm. unless somehow you're clever enough to make that work as something that pulls all of the characters in through to the ending. And so basically when you create a ringer character, you are turning one of the players into an accomplice. So make sure they're an accomplice in moving toward the core fun of the story. Yeah. The, the ringer in our old mill haunted by the Raven might be a guy with one eye who turns out to be, you know, possessed by Odin and he's there to liberate the Raven, not to kill it. 
And maybe he doesn't even know that, you know, him, the character, him, the player would know it because there's a little box that says, you are possessed by Odin. You can do these three cool cantrips, but when you see the raven, you're going to try and free it instead of fight it. And you can also do this sort of thing on a less dramatically, you know, alignment flip fashion with, for example, the other player's hooks. So the lawyer for the, the professor looking for his dad's book is actually there because he wants to get his hands on the blackmail material. He doesn't really care about the debutante, but the debutante's father is rich and powerful, and he knows if he can get that blackmail material, he can become a rich and powerful lawyer too. And you put that in the little box and you say, if the you know debutante finds her blackmail material, maybe you can give her some good advice on how to handle it, such as take it yourself and use it against her father. And that can set up some fun PvP action. It gives the lawyer a reason to steer things in a given direction. He's still got his other ostensible reason for being in the adventure. But if you've got a character with two agendas, both of them calling them to be in, you know, hooked into the adventure, that becomes, I think, better play. And again, in a one shot, one of the joys is you can kind of encourage PvP without it ruining everyone's fun because these characters, you know, they're rentals. You, you can smash them up all you want. So have the debutante, the lawyer, get into a big screaming fight while the raven is pecking people's heads off. That's good drama. You can also look at the character traits that you were describing the pregens having and make sure that it includes traits that forward the story and that leave out the ones that someone else might write in for a longer term game where that could be kind of fun. So, for example, the you have no idea why you would go to the old mill because you're terrified of everything. That character could be a lot of fun in an extended game because presumably eventually, if they're not just acting as the foil all the time, they're getting over that fear or what have you. But you want to make sure that all of the traits you describe are plot forwarding ones. So needs to carefully work out all of the details of any single plan. Not a great pregen, nope. but hates wasting time. That's a great pregen. Mm-hmm. Anxious to get to the point, whatever it is, make the characters more dynamic. Impulsive and overconfident. Yes. And more forwarding than you necessarily would make players do in a long-running campaign of their own. Right. And I think on that note, it's time for us to boldly plunge forward into another hut and or segment. Grain Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home. 
reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-mashed minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. Ooh, I am terrified. I know that I'm standing near the creepiest of huts, the one where the door slams constantly and the wind whistles through. This, of course, is the horror hut. And beloved Patreon backer Jeff Cars uh, summons us into this bone chilling of huts in order to pose the following question. Okay, this is going to be like a middle school gossip chain, but I heard on Grady Hendrix's podcast that Lovecraft did not think Stoker wrote Dracula. Can you cover this? And the answer is the, the slightly less interesting is that Lovecraft thought that Stoker hired a better writer to punch him up, a better writer like punch-up writer H.P. Lovecraft. But we're going to get into the fine details of that, Ken. But first, I understand you have a correction. Yes, I have. When I typed in, because I, I knew the Lovecraft story already, but I wanted to see if there was a general Dracula authorship controversy. So I typed in Dracula authorship controversy, just like a regular person would into Google when it was not me. And this first page of results... New York Times correction, January 24th, 2020. In an earlier version of this article, the given name of the actress who introduced the couple was misspelled. She is Vishnivy Sharma, not Vishmaivy. The given name of the wedding officiate was also misspelled. She is Gabra Zachman, not Dabra. Also, the author of Dracula was incorrect. He is Bram Stoker, not Jane Austen. So, I had a brief, beautiful moment where <laughs> I had Jane Austen's Dracula in my head. But I'm I'm sorry to say the dates do not work out as well, of course, as every other thing about Dracula. But still, that is what you get when you just type Dracula authorship controversy into the internet and wait for the chat GPTs to serve you up something ridiculous. Right. Well, I guess that one, Dracula, would be the, the raffish yet initially misunderstood suitor who turns out to be, you know, actually a good match and therefore perhaps not a Dracula at all. Oh, Jane Austen. Taking Dracula's out of Dracula. One, one hopes that Jane Austen would have made it about Lucy Westenra and her three suitors and her choosing Lord Godalming. And then in like the last chapter, the, oh, and there's a vampire. <laughs> but yes, actually, uh, Lucy Westenra is the protagonist of Northanger Abbey who believes she's in a vampire novel and no one else thinks she is would be kind of a great story. So free idea for all you Austen, uh, manke wannabes out there. But anyway, the Lovecraft story is that over the course of his life, he apparently heard this 
directly from the woman concerned, but he supported it in letters to various of his friends, beginning in 1923 when he writes to Franklin Up Long, having just read Lair of the White Worm and being dumbfounded by its awfulness, as many people are. Right, because if there is an authorship controversy around Stoker, it's that Dracula is so great and perfect and everything else is... Is kind of iffy. It's like yeah. you were not paying attention to what you were writing. Mm-hmm. All this proves to me either that Dracula... And the seven stars were touched up bushwork fashion by a superior hand, which arranged all the details, or that by the end of his life, he trickled out in a pitiful and inept senility. And I think that latter is generally the assumption of Stoker scholars who just argue about, was it syphilis or was it just, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's or some other kind of thing that basically broke his ability to write at all coherently. But his parenthetical is that Mrs. Minotaur saw Dracula in manuscript about 30 years ago. It was incredibly slovenly. She considered the job of revision, but charged too much for Stoker. And uh, he repeats this story to Donald Wandre, where he says everything of Stoker's went through the hands of a rewriter, except perhaps the white worm. And it is curious to note that one of our circle of amateur journalists, an old lady named Mrs. Minotaur, had a chance to revise the Dracula manuscript before its publication, but turned it down because Stoker refused to pay the price, which the difficulty of the work impelled her to charge. Stoker had a brilliantly fantastic mind, but was unable to shape the images he created. And uh, he repeated it again when he wrote to Robert Barlow in 1932, basically the same thing. Finally, someone else whipped it into such shape as it now possesses. This is Lovecraft guessing. And then in his obituary for Edith Minotaur, he mentions the story again. Edith Dow Minotaur, born 1869, died 1934, was an amateur journalist, which is how she became one of Lovecraft's friends. She earned his love by writing parodies of his work and inserting him as a ridiculous cartoonish figure into various of her stories. So Mr. Theobald is someone who demands typewriters be issued with the long S or else he won't use them, that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) And she was also a critic with the Boston Home Journal and was at some level involved with writing criticism of plays and whatnot that came through Boston. So the thesis is that when Stoker is on tour with Henry Irving's company in Boston in January 1894, he's set out to buy the ad space, goes to the Boston Home Journal, meets Mrs. Minotaur, and, you know, says, oh, by the way, I have this gigantic manuscript I can't wrap my head around. What do you think? Raymond McNally and Radu Florescu, who did the yeoman's work of pumping every unverifiable speculation they could into Dracula studies in the 70s, discovered this, you know, for Dracula scholars, and then speculated that it wasn't Edith Minotaur, because, of course, she turned the job down, but it was actually Stoker's friend Hall Kane, and that maybe he is the reason that Dracula looks so nice. But textual evidence, based on the actual physical manuscript that we have, all the corrections are in Stoker's hand, and he's making them right down to the galley-proof stage, so it does not look like that happened, but we are missing whatever the first draft of Dracula was, because the quality of the notes, the story in the notes, changes over the course of their creation, implying that Stoker has tried to draft one version of Dracula with way too many characters and incidental action and a giant mess, and then calved it down to become the uh, masterpiece that it was in 1897. 
And, you know, Lovecraft, you know, doesn't speculate who did it. He just knows that his good friend, Mrs. Miniter, who must have told him this in person, he visited her at home a great deal. Her letters to Lovecraft don't apparently survive. I, I, I dug into that a little bit. But apparently, if Mrs. Miniter, who is a good and decent woman, said it, Lovecraft would never be so ungentlemanly as to deny it. And in fact, if you've read a lot of Bram Stoker, you do begin to wonder how come that's the good one and none of the others are as remotely good. Right. So if we accept the Miniter story, and, and let's do that for the purposes of this, there's, I guess, two options. One of which is that somebody just sat Stoker down and said, hey, look, you've got too many characters here, and this scene at the end with the ice is cool, and the, the ship keep that, but the you know the thing with all of the mice wearing the hats, that seems like it belongs in another novel. Why don't you cut that out? So he could have just gotten notes from somebody and incorporated them in a, basically, we're, we're assuming in either case, a one point, a total do-over in the manuscript, right? If there's mm-hmm. a terrible manuscript, yeah. and then there's one that is basically the manuscript with textual emendations mm-hmm. that presumably there was some, you know, intermediate step or that he had someone wrangle his original manuscript into that form and then rewrote that from scratch. Right. So it's either he got a story doctoring or, or perhaps just on his own, I suppose, did all the good story doctoring that yeah, he mean, never bothered to do. He, he's, he spent by and large five years writing the novel. That's plenty of times to read your own novel, say, Oh my God, this is terrible and go through and excise stuff. So I don't know that we need to posit that there's an extra hand as Lovecraft speculates, but right. Cause he could have just as easily said, do you want to work on this to, to people? And they all said no. And then, then, then he just buckled in. Right. And did, and did the work because he was a very busy guy running the you know front of house for, or, or I guess the back of house for Henry Irving. And you know, he's, he's got a lot on his mind. Working on his vampire novel is something that's sort of snatched. And I'm sure that the temptation to say just someone else, you know, get me out of my box was, was pretty strong for him. I don't think that it's impossible that he would even have asked Edith Miniter necessarily, you know, if, if they've got on well, which seems unlikely given that the Boston Home Journal wrote terrible reviews of Henry Irving, but let's pretend. And, you know, she's obviously gets on well with horror writers, even if she personally doesn't like horror which is another thing I think against her necessarily giving him super great advice, but you know, yeah, there's no evidence that if there was a, a script doctor, there's no evidence it was her. Right. And the, I guess the last wrinkle in this is that there is some evidence that the author of uh, the powers of darkness, which was the Swedish version of Dracula that ran in the uh, Aftenblad at Dagen in Sweden may have been working from an earlier draft of the novel because there are characters in the Swedish version that appear in the notes, but don't appear in the final novel. And that is a, you know, sort of a big question mark. And we don't necessarily know how the Swedes got a hold of that manuscript. If that is in fact what happened or what it is possible that the playwright and Charlotte Leffler, who at the time was as famous as Henrik Ibsen, who was a buddy with and has correspondence with all of Stoker's siblings, so is probably friendly with Stoker himself, she may have got a hold of a very early draft and passed it on to her brother, uh, Gustav Mittag Leffler. Uh, she dies in 1892, so she can't be the person who punches it up, but that may be where the original manuscript 
makes its way into Sweden. Stoker at some point may have made copies and was, you know, passing it out to people as novelists will uh, and saying, see what you think, be my alpha reader. And Anne Charlotte gives it to her brother and her brother passes it on to the Aftonblad after the novel's released. He said, oh, I have an early draft of that. And that's how that happens. So that's the possible trail. But again, sadly, it would be great if Anne Charlotte Leffler turns out to be the, the, the secret author, but she is, uh, as I mentioned, she dies in 1892, which is right as Stoker is beginning the book. So it's, there's no time for it to work. So I guess what we need now is we need like Stephen King or Clive Barker or someone to float a theory that someone other than Lovecraft wrote Lovecraft and then create an ongoing cycle of backwards propelling rewrites through time to either protect the horror canon or perhaps to tear apart the minds of horror readers and, and open the membrane and allow demons to charge through one or the other. One or the other. I suppose that you could, if you wanted to, say that that Lovecraft was secretly, you know, that he was sort of the the Shakespeare in this. He's the the front guy. And everyone who knows him knows that he's this weird eccentric as I mentioned, Edith Miniter wrote little Lovecraft parodies, and this was going on even back in the early amateur journalism days. So, and I don't hold with this myself, but Stephen King, if you want to do this, give me a call. That maybe A. Merritt, who officially never met Lovecraft until the 30s, might have been kind of guy who says, yeah, I'll try doing my Nathaniel Hawthorne impression, and we'll all just have Howard Lovecraft here, this goofball, we'll blame it on him. And that'll be great fun for everyone. Now, this founders on the rock that the Christopher Marlowe wrote Shakespeare rock does, that every plausible candidate's literary style is vastly different from Lovecraft's, which is part of the reason that we love and reverence Lovecraft, even when he's slandering Bram Stoker. But I think that that could be, you know, no more or less unreasonable than most authorship controversies and would at least be a new wrong thing to say about H.P. Lovecraft, which would be fun. Yeah, it would have to be part of a, a make em up right. rather than something you would posit as an actual falsehood because actual falsehoods are not what this podcast is uh, attempting to promote. They, we don't traffic in that. No. But the notion of A. Merritt, you know, having secretly been Lovecraft would make a great premise for a, a sort of a meta fictional novel by Barker or King or one of those guys that's, you know, uncovering the nature of the text and maybe that the, the text itself is, is controlled by one of the outer gods or, or flows through this, you know, uh, experiential, uh, network and, and merit is necessary to make it happen. And that's why Lovecraft's, you know, productivity is, is so sporadic because merit has to do it in between writing his other novels. But, you know, you pre present that in a novel as a speculation and then Surely it will drift into, as Stephen King said, you know, right. in, you know, someone else's podcast. Or perhaps there's some sort of uh, immortal entity that uh, has been writing fiction and changes up its style every so often. And so helped write Dracula and then uh, became H.P. Lovecraft. And perhaps now he's known as Richard Bachman. Exactly. He's out there writing Stephen King if it was short and edited. Well, on that note, let us edit this podcast by heading out of this hut and toward another one.
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast engaged with the mission by joining such fine Patreon backers as... Luke Silburn. Martin Rundqvist. Matthew Preston. Sean Stevenson. And James Stewart. The smell of popcorn, the stab of the projector beam, the whir of the projector, and the constant re-clicking of rotten tomatoes welcome us into a perhaps sidelong section. Maybe we're in the little theater or we're in the bad concessions upstairs that the icy machine is broken, but we're still in the cinema hut. And in the Cinema Hut, Vulture Magazine's Lane Brown, in quest for a pithy quote, said, pithy quote means Paul Schrader, and uh, Paul Schrader pronounced this on the unreliability of Rotten Tomatoes. And Schrader says, audiences are dumber. Normal people don't go through reviews like they used to. Rotten Tomatoes is something the studios can game, so they do. Now, Schrader's got two theses here. Rotten Tomatoes is something the studios can game. I think that's proven, right? That's like gravity. Well, yes and no, but I think that's a less interesting question. So right. basically, the bigger and better known the film, the less they can game it. And the gaming is actually happening on the margins for relatively unknown art films that need a higher tomato meter score. Th this is not counting Disney literally pressuring Rotten Tomatoes to include all of the internet, you know, holtmovie.com critics as Rotten Tomato points, right? I mean, that happened. Right. And that was because the thesis is that younger, more online critics are going to like Marvel movies better than older, stodgy print critics are. Anyway, the thing that interests me is <laughs> our audience is dumber. Yeah. And this is a common thing that creators, particularly when we reach a certain age, mm -hmm. start to say. And Trader is someone who came up during the brief flowering of the American New Wave, which was both started and ended by the same people. Yeah. So this is in the very late 60s and mostly early 70s. And then it's a generation of directors at a point where the traditional studios have just forgotten how to make movies. They, mm -hmm. they have no idea what to do and they don't know how to make a hit. And so they turn to these rebels and oddballs and there's a series of quite artful, evocative films that get a certain amount of critical acclaim and they win Oscars. And in some cases, audiences even go to them. But if you look at the history of, you know, the rest of cinema, you find that people's tastes over time are generally about the same. And in fact, when you go back to look at what was leading the box office in 1973, which was sort of the, the height of this American New Wave period, there are some classic films on there, 
Absolutely. But they're all big crowd pleasers as well. So The Exorcist, which mm-hmm. was directed by William Friedkin, who you can certainly argue with his French Connection movies is part of the sort of realism and gritty vibe of the American New Wave. But it's also the movie that invented the blockbuster. Got the Sting, American Graffiti, Papillon, The Way We Were, Magnum Force. There's almost always a James Bond movie in the top 10. Yep. You've got a Disney movie, Robin Hood. Paper Moon is as close to a sort of pure American New Wave film as we can imagine. And it it actually did crack the top 10. And Serpico, uh, also very much in that mold. So that contrasts strongly with the top movies today. But the top movies today are mostly franchise movies. And that, as we've described earlier on the podcast, is the outgrowth, first of all, of The Exorcist, but then a few years later of Jaws and Star Wars, Mm -hmm. also by directors steeped in that movement. And that, over several iterations, has resulted in what movies are today. But does that mean that the mass audience uh, had a taste for more artful, serious movies for a while and carefully read reviews and chose the movies on that basis, and now they don't, or just that there's always a relatively small number of people who like artful films and that they find them in different ways in different periods of movie coming. Well, I mean, I think that the notion of audiences being dumber is well it's it's a it's a bold statement cotton i feel like reviews are dumber i think that's you know true there's more of them and by sturgeon's law that just means that there's more bad reviews out there also not that barriers to entry are a be all and end all but barriers to entry used to exist for a reason and while that meant that there was plenty of terrible reviewers working for mid-market newspapers there are now even more terrible reviewers with nothing whatsoever to uh, justify their dumb opinion of Oppenheimer or whatever it is. So I really feel like to some extent, the reviews while still plenty of dumb ones in 1973 were perhaps less dumb that maybe the amount of bad reviews didn't differ that much as a percentage. But if you were a film buff in the seventies, you could find, you know, Janet Maslin or Pauline Kael or whoever and follow them with some degree of confidence. Whereas now it's, you know, if you're a new film person, it, it, it's a sea of voices. There, there's less curation. And so therefore random walk maybe leads you to follow dumber reviewers. That's maybe a, a workable explanation. I think audiences per se have liked what audiences always like. And even, you know, Paper Moon, which is, a, as you say, an arty new wave movie is also a con man movie, which is a pretty it's a good crowd pleaser crowd pleaser. And it stars one of the prettiest people in the universe, Ryan O'Neill. So there's a lot going on, but even in 1973, as you point out, we've got two franchise movies. Magnum force of course is a dirty Harry movie. Love and let die a bond movie. And Robin hood is, you know, a Disney cartoon back when that was its own franchise. So we're not, you know, we're not in some, golden era of Cahir du Cinema or tourism, even in 1973, even in the height of the new wave. And in 2023, which is not over, by the way, we still have, you know, the, the, the Oscar bait movies to get through. And some of them are going to do pretty well, I suspect, but we have a definite piece of auteur work, Barbie. We have Oppenheimer, a masterpiece. 
And we have the sound of freedom, which is the closest thing to an American independent that exists now because it's made by a Christian weirdo. And, you know, that's not bad for 2023, which, yes, is drowning in Disney and Marvel Drek as well. But there we are. Yeah, the the sound of freedom is sort of like uh, there was a Noah's Ark movie that cracked the top 10 one uh, year in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And that would have been like four walling the theater to to rent it out from its producers. So that's sort of the kind of weird fluke. I think by the end of the year, maybe Flowers of the Killer Moon will move up and perhaps nudge that out of 10. And, and there's other big yeah. prestige pictures as well. I think also that how people can check out movies has changed and that it is much easier to be a film fan in the age of streaming. Although you can't argue that the entire history of film, particularly studio films from particular studios is fully available, but it never was. And when you and I were coming up, we would have to go to rep houses and see uh, crummy crackly prints and go to considerable effort to see things that are now you can subscribe to the criterion channel Mm -hmm. or, and you can do that not just in a big city, but anywhere else. So my own theory is just basically that the films that film fans like and have as part of their canon sometimes do very well and sometimes flop, but they're looking back at their own canon of past films and comparing them to everything that is out today and seeing everybody, you know, sometimes everybody goes to really great film. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Oppenheimer or a weird auteurist subversive film like Barbie. But sometimes they go to, you know, another crowd pleaser of another sort. And the difference is that a crowd pleaser is more likely to be a package franchise film, but that's starting to kind of wear a bit as there's been several years of disappointing franchise titles. And we may be on the cusp of a, a shift where audience members can prove just how smart they are by seeking out smarter things. Yeah. Again, Blaming the audiences for this is, I think, putting the cart a little bit before the horse. I'm not saying audiences are innocent. No one, no one is at gunpoint going to the live action remake of Little Mermaid. They're choosing to do that. Well, their children are taking them at gunpoint. Well, I believe whatever. that's what happens. Yeah. Raise your kids better. That's, that's our advice. Our, our childless podcaster advice to you, parents. But some of this is the studios is what the studios are presenting in the seventies. Studios were weirdly desperate and they were run uh, much more than they are today by younger people who were willing to take chances. And that's just demographic. The, the studio heads are all in their seventies and eighties. Now, back in those days, they were in their forties. And the producers are not as desperate for anything that they're willing to go to young or tourist directors and give them creative control. So, right. Uh, and even when you get a young tourist director for a Marvel movie, you strip out script control, you strip out story control, you strip out final edit and, if you are extraordinarily lucky, you get a James Gunn who can put maybe 25% of his actual sensibility into a movie, or even a Sam Raimi can't get much more than that. And if you're just an amiable hack like Kenneth Branagh is in the glorious British tradition of being an amiable hack, you just churn out garbage and cash the check and move on. Right. So the Chloe Zhao Marvel movie, there's a few sequences where you go, oh, there's a Chloe Zhao sequence in the mm-hmm. rest of this Marvel movie. And <laughs> the sea of, of oatmeal. Right. Which, again, I think we have to look at the genius of Greta Gerwig in managing to preserve her sensibility in a giant franchise licensed product movie. And again, this may come down to, you know, sort of the, the theory of personalities. Maybe the producer in charge of Barbie was both, you know, maybe panicked that the Barbie movie would not hook and thought, well, anything you know, let's take a gamble or they might've just been 
the occasional smart, in- interesting person you get in charge of things. The Mattel people were inexperienced and got rolled. Yeah, right. <laughs> they went to make all the same stupid complaints and Greta Gerwig talked them out of it. Well, again, you're in a room with Greta Gerwig. You better walk out agreeing with Greta Gerwig. That seems like a no-brainer to me. Well, I think now that we've provided people with an axiom for life, it's time to move on to our final segment. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time to head once more into that most ill-defined of huts, the one sort of on the edge of crackpotism and alternate history and the paranormal and I'm not sure where we are until I look over in the corner and see the gray alien and the Nordic alien sitting in the corner drinking a kombucha. I'm going to look out the window, see the alien big cat screaming on the moor, and realize that I'm once more in the elliptony hut. This time around, I thought we would circle back to something that uh, we turned up during our Sycamore Gap segment, because we looked into Hexham, one of the towns uh, near where that tree was felled, and discovered that there were a couple of weird events connected to it. And the one with the most weirdness and the one that possibly uh, hooks back into the other weirdness is that of the Hexham heads, which are small, now missing stone or concrete or sandstone. We're not totally sure because they're gone. We can't test them. Heads dug up by a Colin and Leslie Robson in their garden in May or June of 1971. And Ken, after that, is when things get weird. It is. The Hexham heads, as you say, they're handball-sized. They're roughly a little smaller than a tennis ball. There is one boy, as they are dubbed, uh, that has striped front-to-back hair, and one girl, or hag, with bulgy eyes and a beaky nose. Now, people have been digging up little stone heads in their gardens, near their wells, finding them in foundations, all across the north of England, the main scholarly compendium of Celtic stone heads finds 378 in one writing of Yorkshire, one quarter of Yorkshire. So obviously they're thick on the ground. They're generally called Celtic stone heads in a wonderful bit of tautology. They're generally variously dated. Some go to the pre-Roman Iron Age. Most probably are Romano-British. A lot of them are medieval. And it turns out that there is a 
folk art tradition of making little stone heads that people will tell you about if you go to their village and they're like, yeah, we make them and we put them in the wall because it's cool. And even high artists have been known to make stone heads for church sculptures or for their own sculpture to sort of tie in with this. Uh, I don't want to say imagined, but let's say created. Past. Yeah, but Banksy's just waiting for his stone heads to get dug up. Exactly, for his stone head phase. And for example, there is probably a Romano-British head of Meponis, who is a, a god version of a goddess. He's a male version of a goddess found at Corbridge, which is the Roman town very near to Hexham. So again, we're right there. It's not unusual to find stone heads. What is unusual is that the stone heads immediately trigger poltergeist phenomena. So they put the heads on their little shelf. The boys do. Then they wake up the next morning. The heads have moved around. And then, you know, bottles will be thrown mysteriously and doors will stick and other poltergeisty things will happen. The neighbors, the Dodd family, suffer from mysterious hair pulling and other poltergeist phenomena. And it climaxes with the sight of what is variously described as a goat-like figure or were-sheep. One of those sounds less alarming than the other. Wandering through their garden. There is a report that a, a diligent investigator turned up by, I think, going to the pub and asking of a drunk who was like, oh, yeah, that was old Scott. He was uh, carrying a sheep around the area on his back because he was drunk. And so, question mark. Anyway, they don't like uh, having these weird heads do weird things. They take them to Hexham Abbey to say, can you bless our heads and make them stop being poltergeists? And the Abbey says, where did you find these? What's going on? And they wind up at the Newcastle Museum of Antiquities, where a Professor Robson, no relation, probably, of the University of Newcastle said the heads are not sculpted at all, but they're molded from cement. Uh, They can't possibly have poltergeist magic because they were made, you know, this couple of years ago. At some point, however, Celtic artifact specialist Anne Ross, who is at Southampton University and the author of Pagan Celtic Britain, a well-known at the time text and well-regarded, by the way, she's not a nutball. She is a kooky archaeologist. And so in Pagan Celtic Britain, she says the human head was regarded by the Celts as being symbolic of divinity and other world powers. And I think that is an example both of her prose and her scholarship. So she gets the head somehow and takes them down with her to Southampton. And when she has the heads in Southampton, she says she saw a wolf man, much worse than a sheep man, I think, as did her daughter Bernice. I think the wolf men prey on the sheep men. I think that they do. Uh, and that she had cold spots. She had doors mysteriously or rather, her, stick. Her house had cold spots, right? Her, yes, she experienced cold spots. She yeah. she herself maintained an equable temperature throughout. I'm sure she was a dotty redheaded archaeologist, by golly. But her house did get mysteriously cold and weird. Her study door, where she kept the heads, would blow open or stick closed. And of course, she saw these various dark wolf-like figures haunting her. And then she went on BBC to say, "I have these Celtic heads, and they're haunting me." And that, I think, is sort of what turns it from a weird side note to a big national whoop de doo Anyway, she writes the heads up in 1973 for an archaeological journal, attributes them to an early date, and cites the Southampton University geologist Frank Hodson, who makes a microscopic study of the heads and says they're made of sandstone with hints of lime coating and color material. So, we now have two scholars... In fairness, Hodson makes only a microscopic study. Robson apparently took a piece of the head for a test, but they have entirely different views on what the heads could be. And in 1974, amateur sculptor Desmond Craigie, who used to live 
at the Robson house before they did said, oh, I made those heads in 1956 as a little toys for my daughter. I mean, three of them, one's off somewhere. I don't know where, but the other two probably just fell in the garden and, and got buried. That's the story. And here I'll make you heads to show that I can do them. And he made little uh, concrete heads and they look like garbage. They're not as nice as the Hexham heads. So either he worked harder on the ones for his daughter or he was making it up or whatever. However, the other option is Colin Robson, the one of the boys who found the heads, is known to have made creepy little clay heads at school before he found the Hexham heads. So maybe Desmond Craigie didn't do it, but maybe someone else found some cement lying around a building site, made cool heads, etc. Right. Because as we all know, that it doesn't necessarily have to be an old certified antique head in order to have weird paranormal abilities associated with it. Oh, if it's it's made by a weird-looking British teen, then poltergeist magic is just baked into that, right? Right, because teens and young people are focuses for poltergeists, as we know from the esoterist hoaxes, are a great source for actual uh, real magic. Mm. Now, there's also a somewhat werewolfy connection to this, because, of course, we have Anne Ross seeing a werewolf, and also there was a a wolf attack in 1904. There was the Hexham Wolf or Wolf of Allendale, which unfortunately, when you look into the story, is not that lycanthropic. It's an actual wolf that went wild and killed some livestock. It, and it, it escaped a circus and killed a bunch of sheep, which I guess explains the were sheep being there as well. Right. So that connects all of those things up, but uh, not in uh, nearly as, uh, as fun a fashion. And the werewolf of uh, Hexham of 1904, or Wolf, as he is better known, was killed by a train. So, if you're wondering, how do you kill a werewolf? Drive a train over him seems to also work. Uh, you just have to have a train handy. Experimental data. Well, it's probably got some silver in it somewhere. Right. So the, so the heads, there is a letter in the archives of University of Newcastle that's Mrs. Robson writes to the university and says, I know this is all good fun, but my boys would like their magic heads back. Can you send them to us? And the university says, oh, absolutely. So one theory is the heads went back up to Newcastle, was given to Mrs. Robson, and the boys, you know, just carried them off to the ends of the world and for some reason have refused to mention that. The other theory, which comes from a book called The Secret Language of Stone, by a chemist and earth mysteries maven named Don Robbins. And yes, I own that book. And yes, it is great fun. And he did not have any spooky events around him when he had the heads. He got them from Southampton University at the behest of Ann Ross, his sometime collaborator. He does mention that his dog bit the female head. So maybe his dog was keeping him safe from the head magic. But he can't make head or tail <laughs> out of them. And he passes them on in February of 1978 to an astrologer and diviner named Frank Hyde, who may or may not be the same as the actual radio astronomer F.W. Hyde, who apparently when you ask, they say, oh, yeah, he was into a lot of weird stuff. Uh, but who can say? So anyway, this Frank Hyde wraps them in a homemade Faraday cage to test their magic and then... Don Robbins writes to Frank Hyde and says, hey, man, you know those heads? We kind of need them back. Never hears anything. Frank Hyde vanishes. Heads disappear. No one knows anything. If it's F.W. Hyde, what happened is he got bored with the heads and lost them, which apparently he did with a lot of stuff. But if it's mysterious diviner Frank Hyde, then he returned to the land of uh, the, the Hexham Wolf and 
again, I have to reiterate, Hexum is Exum from Rats in the Walls. Hexum Abbey, no doubt, built on the foundations of Exum Priory, so gigantic Neolothotep cannibal cults everywhere. Where sheep are just the tip of the of the iceberg here, Robin. Right. And actually there was an exorcism to deal with the were sheep? Yes. In twenty eleven, the tenant of the house where the heads were found was bothered by were sheep sightings and said, I'm gonna end this foolishness and went to a Roman Catholic priest to come and exorcise the place. Apparently Anglicanism not good for exercising. I wouldn't know. And apparently that did it. That did the trick. The were sheep are no longer stalking Reed Lane in Hexham. The situation is now under control. Robin, you'll be glad to know, uh, except for the fact that the two Hexham heads, which cause werewolves and were sheep and cold spots and poltergeists, are completely lost and could be anywhere. Right. So, of course, that's where the scenario comes in. Mm-hmm. So, all you have to do is say, well, your mission investigators, whether it's this is normal now, investigators from the Yellow King or members of the Ordo Veritatis from the Esoteris, you have got a new lead on these uh, things and you need to find them because they're a major locus of weirdness. They have power either because the person who originally made them was reading the King in Yellow or because the Esoteris are ginning up magic around a hoax. And so your goal is to find them and intercept them, which will mean, you know, very few of the people on the list left that you can go and talk to. They're just sort of a a trail off of the the custody chain and you've got to locate them. Another thing to do, though, is that the there's a crime, there's a break in, there's a carjacking and you're called in to investigate that. And you discover partway through that that was to steal the Hexam heads, perhaps from one set of sorcerers and grab them for the benefit of another because again they're just super powerful artifacts that uh, any paranormal villain could use to realize any number of threats so they you know could just be creating a poltergeist phenomenon but that's you know kind of small potatoes i think uh, the the goat figure the were sheep uh, those seem like uh, like more of a threat and something that you could uh, use as a weapon against your enemies yeah and you can also just the notion that these heads become this channel to either an actual Celtic divinity from ancient times or a brand new postmodern divinity created by the energy of credulous BBC interviewers and possibly weird radio astronomers, that this new postmodern quad Celtic god is an even more powerful figure because, you know, the Hexham heads, they had a big impact on the sort of the psychic reality of British weird hunters in the seventies. And it's, you know, they show up on the covers of books and in little posters and, you know, they're still a thing, right? They're still a, an item. So they're, they're powerful in that unknown armies sense, even if they're not technically iron age Celtic uh, heads that, you know, summon the God Maponis or whatever, or tap, 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 Kybele, Exum Priory people. And, and so of course your uh, scenario could lead you to Hexum Priory. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could perhaps there'd be rats in those walls. You never know. There'd be all sorts of uh, possibilities there. You got your rats, you got your sheep, you got your wolves. All manner of, of folk horror possibilities. Mm-hmm. Well, once we've uh, looked at the full breadth of the possible uh, scenarios that you can wring from an eleptonic subject, I think it's time uh, once again to exit this here podcast. But we promise you we will re-enter it a mere week from today. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borchess. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast correctly attributed and also funded by joining such discerning backers as... Josh Borlace. Ludovic Chavant. Mark Kevin Hall. Michael Bowman. And Alexander Shendy. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate densely packed biomes with our latest design, You Are a Special Island. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.Camp. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.